everyone and welcome to Equals. Yes, welcome everybody and what a big day today. Elizabeth, uh, it's first time hosting the podcast. Yes, I've decided to claim a little stardom. Behind the scenes it's too boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to come out into the limelight, you know, that's brilliant. And and we just you know, thought it'd be good to liven up the podcast a bit, a few less old men. But anyway, Liz, I mean, obviously you're our producer on the show, but uh, can you perhaps tell listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Max. So my name is Elizabeth Jambi. I am a lawyer, advocate of the High Court of Kenya. I'm a human rights enthusiast, and I also run my own organization, Wakilisha Initiative, promoting access to justice for children in conflict with the law. So that's what I do when I'm not here listening to you guys speaking all the time. And talking of that, what are we um, what are we talking about today? So we are talking public transport and specifically buses. Yeah, buses and inequality. Yeah, we're well, going to start out um, firstly with an interview that Nabil and I did a couple of weeks ago with Basam Kawaja. He's a human rights lawyer, just like you, and he has authored a report on the privatisation of buses in the UK and the the human cost of that. So that's that's what we're going to start with. Yeah, then right after that, we're going to go into an interview with Matteo Rizzo. He's a senior lecturer in development studies at SOAS, University of London. You and I do that interview. Obviously, you know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's lived in Dar es Salaam for six years and his Swahili is perfect. That's oh, wasn't it amazing? I mean, wow. honestly... Wow. Absolutely pitch perfect. <laughs> Don't yeah. the accent. He actually sounds Tanzanian and he's Italian. He, he said he was organising interviews when he was in Tanzania on the phone. And when the people turned up for the interview and realised he was Italian, they all thought he was Tanzanian, which is quite an achievement, isn't it? Just amazing. Yeah, so we'll have that. And he'll be talking about public transport in developing countries and the role of the World Bank. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. Let's get started. Welcome, Basam, to Equals. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Basam, very warm welcome. It's uh, it's great great to have you finally on. And I'm dying to ask an opening question. Now, you're based in New York. You know, you're from the Middle East. You're Palestinian. You work on human rights. You've got this kind of legal background. What on earth led you to write about buses in the UK, of all places? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good, good question. It's a fair question, and one we got a lot in the UK, actually. So I direct a project on privatization alongside Rebecca Riddell. We used to work with Philip Austin when he was UN Rapporteur on Poverty, and we would do these country investigations where we would go in and you know see what government's policies towards poverty, uh, you know how they're holding up on human rights, and over and over we'd see this issue of privatization come up that that wasn't well documented. There weren't a lot of people looking into it, but it had massive impacts. So. When the UN mandate ended, we wanted to look in more detail into privatization and see kind of what the human rights impacts are, you know, what is actually happening when these things get privatized. And the UK was the perfect example to start with. What do buses have to do with inequality? Then? What's the report showing us? So the report found that this is essentially a, a masterclass in how not to run an essential service. Buses aren't traditionally what we would view as a human rights issue. There's no technical right to transport, although there probably should be. But transport is essential to almost everything we do. And most human rights have some amp- some element of transport attached to them. And so, for example, 
if you need to get to work, if you need to get to healthcare, if you need to get to school, to education, I mean, all of that involves transport. And if you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a car, you can't afford a train, your only option is buses. And when the buses become incredibly expensive, when routes that you depend on get cut, that has a massive impact on you. Particular people like, you know, refugees or migrants, older people, people living in rural areas. These are some of the people that are most impacted on buses and, and the service they get is often very poor in the UK as a result of privatization. It's funny. Um, I think of all the things that Mrs. Thatcher, you know, I grew up blaming her for. And, uh, <laughs> this is just one that I hadn't really... I mean, my wife's family, do, they do live in a very rural area. So I was kind of aware of this, but it's not something I, I knew the history of. And you do a lot of kind of qualitative interviews, hearing people's stories. Perhaps you could like paint a picture for some. What, what were some of the real life stories you heard, some of the real life impacts of, on people's lives of, of such a deregulated service? The, the impact is enormous. I mean, we spoke with Lee in Hartlepool, who right after the 2007 financial crisis lost his job because the bus route that he depended on was cut and he was no longer able to get to work. It took him years to find another job. We spoke with people who couldn't get to the hospital because they don't have a car. The hospitals are far away away and they don't have a bus that gets them there in any kind of reasonable way. So over and over when we spoke with people, the, the fact that they had lived in a place where the, the, the route was cut had enormous impact on their life. Some people had to give up education, so stopped going to school or university. And that's just when routes are cut. I mean, there's a whole host of other things that happen. So imagine if you live in a place with a, a deregulated bus system, suddenly there are multiple bus companies competing with each other. They might change routes on a dime without really giving you any information about that. They will start charging you potentially more money. Buses have gone up enormously over the past several years. You might not know where the routes go because there's different timetables and maps for each company and there's no one kind of primary resource that the, the local authority sets out that gives you that information. And so, you know, far from being a more efficient or cheaper option, it's really been total chaos. And the only winners have been the bus companies who for years have made pretty historic profits. And they're making these profits on the backs of people who often have very little or no other choice and are basically forced to use these systems that get worse and worse. Obviously, the report's about the, the UK and it's a disaster. But have you been able to look at other countries or maybe, I don't know, other bits of the United Kingdom that are doing things a bit better and what's happened to improve things? I mean, is anyone doing anything right in this story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so you have countries like Switzerland, Germany, and they have, you know, a system of every village every hour. And so a bus comes in every hour at every village with more than 100 people or so. I mean, the difference is, of course, that it's not deregulated. It's either heavily regulated or publicly owned in a way that works for everybody. If you look within the UK, obviously London is the big example of what regulation can deliver, but there's also small places. Uh, Nottingham has basically a holdover system from the early days. It, it, it's a private company, but it's owned by Nottingham. You know, they're able to reinvest profits into the system. It's an award-winning... I love the way you say Nottingham. I'm really, I'm really enjoying that. <laughs> wait, wait until I say Glasgow. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Edinburgh, you know, Reading, these are all places where you have not technical public ownership, but, but they're private companies owned by these local authorities. And they're, they run far better than most of what we've seen in, in, in the privatized and deregulated space. Yeah, I think in, in Oxford, we have the Oxford Bus Company, which is a similar. So I think there are some holdovers. But yeah, as you say, like in lots of places, it's a disaster. What, what would you say if you were in charge of the buses in Britain tomorrow, what would you do? So we're calling for a few different things. Uh, first is public control as the default. And so instead of you know the current system where the default is that everything is deregulated and bus companies do whatever we want, we want a London style system. That means that you have an authority that 
you know, even if it's private companies who operate the buses, you have an authority that sets out, you know, what are the prices, what are the routes, make sure that it runs for everybody. Greater Manchester has just taken the first step in that process. It looks like they are going to move in that direction, but but it's an incredibly difficult system. I mean, it's very clear that the UK is not trying to incentivize this. And so it, there really needs to be a much easier process to go down that route. And then ultimately public ownership would deliver a much more efficient system at a cheaper price with all kinds of other things that are built into it. So for, you know, you would have actual accountability, you know, in the current system, if something doesn't work for you, you're dealing with a private company. You can't go to local authorities because they don't run the buses. In fact, when we raised questions of transportation during our UN visit with Philip Alston a few years ago, they just said, well, that's privatized. It's not our problem. Basama, you've given us some solutions there. I wanted to just close out with a question because you mentioned something really interesting earlier in this interview when you spoke about the human rights side of things. And it's funny because when we think about human rights, I, you know, the mind for many people will switch to you know extrajudicial killings and forced disappearances and these kinds of issues. And yet you are talking about a different way of, of talking about understanding human rights. And you're talking about economic rights. Is there a wider project here, Bassam, to almost reclaim economic rights? Because it seems to me, it feels to me at times that there's almost been like a, you know, a neoliberal capture of human rights itself. Historically, there's obviously been a lot more attention on, on civil and political rights. I mean, one of the things we're trying to do is to raise the profile of economic and social rights, things like the right to housing, the right to work, clearly transportation, you know, heavily affects things like your ability to get to work, you know, your ability to go to a protest, your ability to go to a religious center, everything that you might do involves transportation. And if you cut off transportation, you limit people's access to their rights. And so we need to have a much more broader conception of what these rights mean. And ultimately, it's just it's not acceptable to leave something so vital to the private market. I'm convinced I remember a Norwegian ally, friend of mine years ago, he was complaining that they privatized the cinema in Norway, and that was a disaster. <laughs> <The> cinema? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I was thinking, like, just how far do I go with this public first? And then, he, and then he made a really convincing case. He said, basically, you know, films that are made in Norwegian, they have to be subsidized. You know I mean? Otherwise, we just get American imports, you know. So I, I just think there is a sense in which so much it's important to be public and uh, it should be there for everyone. But this, this issue of transport, you've inspired us to look at it in terms of developing countries too and understand the role of the World Bank and others. So this was a really helpful interview. Thanks, Basam. And uh, here we are. I'm sitting in the UK now and I had no idea this was going on. So uh, it's been an eye opener for me. And I've really enjoyed the interview. Thank you very much. Clearly, we need more human rights, uh, you know, advocates in New York who are originally from the Middle East to be taking on <laughs> UK, uh, UK privatization. Thank you, Basam. Thank you both for having me. Great, great interview with Basam. And now we speak with Matteo. Matteo, welcome to Equals. Hello. It's, it's going to be fun. We're going to be uh, talking a lot about buses. So let's get started. Paint us a picture of the crisis in public transport in most cities in the global south. What does it actually mean for ordinary people? Yeah, it's a picture of a huge traffic congestions, limited or no provision altogether of public transport by the public sector. And you find that the vast majority of public transport is provided today by private and informal minibuses. They are quite cheap, relatively speaking, although we should notice that the poor spends a high percentage of their budget on public transport, as high as 25-30% in some cities. And these are quite old vehicles, 
which means they are highly polluting and they tend to speed, to be overloaded and quite unsafe as a result. And what you find if you research these uh, sectors is that these buses are operated by informal workers, by which I mean workers uh, operating these buses without employment contracts. And they're often behaving in this way, speeding, overloading the vehicles, in order to make ends meet once the bus owners are asking them for significant sums of money at the end of each day. So because the public transport is so bad, you have also a race to own your private vehicle. So you have two forces leading to this congestion. On the one end, the crisis of public transport. On the other end, the proliferation of ownership of uh, cars. And this leads to the congestion I was referring to. Thank you, Matteo, for painting such a clear picture. I'd like to say I'm quite young, but I've had stories from my mom about a time when Kenya had a public transport system operated by the Kenya Bus Service. And it sounds really great. Myself, I didn't get to experience this kind of situation. And I really wonder, how did we get from there to what you just explained, you know, what created such a mess? And if any, what has been the role of the World Bank and the IMF? Yeah, that's a very important question. And it's true that given how young the population in Africa and Asia tends to be, many people don't have a memory of what it looked like. And this has become the only way people can relate to when it comes to public transport. This mess, the crisis of public transport, becomes obvious in the early 80s. But its roots are a bit earlier in the mid-70s to late-70s. And what was happening is that because cities were growing very rapidly across Africa, Asia and Latin America throughout the 60s and the 70s, demand for transport, for public transport, was of course going up quite rapidly. At the same time, the supply of uh, public transport, which at that time, as Elizabeth pointed out, was provided by the public sector, public transport companies, was either constant or decreasing. The oil crisis hit the public purse of developing countries' government very hard. And what you find is that the capacity to subsidize and fund the public transport companies disappears from the mid-70s onwards. Now, what's the role of the World Bank and the IMF when this crisis is manifesting itself in the early 80s? This is also the time where structural adjustment programs sponsored by the World Bank and IMF have been very aggressively promoted, rolled out in developing countries. And the fiscal austerities, and therefore putting constraints on public spending, was one of the main policy asks of structural adjustment policies. So we can say that the public sector in public transport was a casualty of structural adjustment policies, and as economic liberalization intensified over the late 80s and then 90s, you find that there is always also an increasing deregulation of the activities of the private sector. So the fair levels, for instance, are now left to supply and demand in the market rather than regulated by a public sector uh, authority. So World Bank and IMF did not start this crisis, did not cause this crisis in the first place. But when the early 80s comes, they have a big role in forcing the private sector to being the main provider of public transport in cities of the global south. We're seeing that the World Bank is pushing for a kind of solution with this new BRT systems, that is the bus rapid transit. What really is this and on what scale is it happening, especially in developing countries? 
So let's start with the scale. Uh, and the first thing to say is that it is the mode of public transport growing most rapidly in the world. As to what is a BRT system, uh, the slogan of a BRT is uh, Think Rail, See Bus. Advocates of BRT claim that this is about combining the flexibility of bus transit with the speed, reliability, and capacity of underground systems. And the, the great appeal is that they claim that this happens at a fraction of the cost. So how do they work in practice? You have a BRT system operating on dedicated bus lanes, so exclusive bus lanes for these buses while passengers pair their fares before boarding. The promise is that fares on BRT systems are comparable to the minibuses that BRT tend to replace, although this is often not the case. And the other thing important to say here is that BRT systems are funded through World Bank and other development banks' loans, and they are operated as public-private partnerships that is dictated as one of the conditionalities of the lending. So in some, BRT systems are sold as a, quote, win-win solution to public transport problems that benefit at once the economy because you address this uh, congestion, the environment because they are greener than the old minibuses that they replace, and the poor because they claim that the fares are comparable to the minibuses system that they replace. I'm no expert on public transport, but I certainly live in Nairobi and saw the absolute insanity uh, and the danger that poor people have to face every day with these minibuses. This bus thing sounds really good, Matteo. I mean, I hate to say it, it sounds like the World Bank is doing something good for once, but you've been really critical of it. Could you maybe go a bit more into why you think it's not really the great solution that it sounds like it is? Yeah, of course. You're right. I'm uh, extremely critical of BRT systems. I, I suppose the main issue is that this uh, rosy picture, this win-win scenario that is described by its advocates is a big lie, really. So let's start from fair levels. They are higher than pre-existing minibuses tend to charge. And this, of course, has very dire and uh, implications on the capacity of the poor to access these revamped public transport systems. Second, BRT systems are promised to be financially self-sufficient once the implementation starts because the narrative says that you have private companies who have enough readership to be able to sustain themselves. But again, once implementation starts, you find that BRT systems require public subsidies and that is problematic because the minibuses system that they replace were operating without benefits. Also, we should point out to the employment implications of these BRT systems. When you move from minibuses, which are typically 20, 30 seaters, to buses that are 150 seaters, you are killing, on average, five, six jobs out of seven in the public transport. Last but not least, as I said, BRT systems are operated through loans. And as a result of that, the public sector undertake huge debts to repay these loans. If today you are put in charge of the World Bank, and you're not going for anyone's job, are you? But if today you are put in charge of the World Bank, what would you be proposing instead to end this crisis? Okay. The first thing I would say is let's not start by assuming that BRT is the solution to 
public transport problems. Let's have a, a genuinely white canvas and let's explore the costs and opportunities of a wide range of interventions. For instance, what is the cost of boosting the recapitalization of the current minibus system with finance to help the transition to larger and greener buses that are better than the current 2030 seaters seen in most of the cities, but maybe without jumping to 150 to 100 seaters given the employment implications that there are. This will have important costing implications because the road infrastructure will be cheaper. You don't need to build this kind of a tarmac to sustain the weight and tonnage of a 200 or 150 seaters. You will have a different outcomes in terms of employment intensity. You will have also a different outcomes in terms of capacity to incorporate pre-existing operators into the system. Second, I think I would be very upfront that when you intervene in public transport, you have two conflated development problems. One is how do you move people around in a city? What is the most efficient way in terms of transport? But there is, as I said, an issue of employment. What are the trade-offs between different types of public transport, between increasing the size of buses and the speed of travel and destroying jobs? Can we help city authorities to make an informed decision about these trade-offs rather than bulldozing going forward with BRT as this win-win solution when we clearly know that this is not a win-win solution? So, I mean, ideally, you could have them publicly owned. You could have, I don't know, maybe two classes on the bus, very, very cheap tickets for the poorest. There's things they could at least think about that would improve things. But ideally, you don't want cities to go down this route in the first place if they possibly can do something different. I think that's very clear. Another thing to say, let's think about BRT systems in conjunction with the private car use that is taking place in parallel, right? Because we have these two lanes where BRT buses are operating and alongside that, the two lanes where private cars are circulating. What is striking is that there is no attempt to decrease the use of these private cars and they are clearly the main cause of congestions rather than the minibuses themselves. Playing devil's advocate then, Matteo, isn't it better for the, for the BRT system to be reassuringly expensive and amenable to the middle classes then if your objective is to get rid of the four by fours? Because as you say, the minibuses are not the main cause of congestion. So it has to be a public transport system like we have here in London where, well, the super rich will still drive everywhere because they don't want to be seen with the poor. But the vast majority of people see public transport as something they would use and not something that's just for poor people. And can I add on to that? Because obviously the current transport system still has its flaws. How then are we working on the flaws of the current uh, minibus system? Well, the emphasis on balancing that you were making is really the, the key issue here. And I can tell you the experience I had when I first saw BRT operating in Dar es Salaam and how undesirable was the balance that was reached after the rolling out of BRT. Because the fair levels were too high, the government had no courage to phase out the minibuses from the routes operating in parallel to BRT systems, right? And this goes against the planning and the plan of BRT, and it means that a scarce resource, taxpayer money, has been used 
to revamp public transport in a way that excludes the poor. That is the very undesirable balance. Well, what you're describing as solutions are much more desirable. You could try to subsidize fair levels to make it inclusive to the poor. You could try to curb down the use of uh, inefficient use of four by four. You could try to hit all these things, but they require strong political will and they might be presented, met with very strong resistance. It's very messy politics we are talking about and it requires some very courageous, brave choices on behalf of the government. We've discussed a lot of things. We've seen positive stories. We've talked about the crisis. But I wonder, Matteo, when you look at your research, what can you point to as something that gives you hope? So first of all, I, I, I strongly believe in the role of research in uh, exploding these tensions. And that's what motivates me personally to try to contribute in the small way I can to emphasizing the problems associated with BRT. And I think what gives me hope is that, in a sense, the very aggressive promotion of BRT is uh, bringing to the fore Uh, some very significant contradictions that are associated with the implementation of BRT. And this might trigger a debate that you can see sometimes emerging in uh, Tanzania, which is the context I know better. These are the kind of debates that are becoming more dynamic, more vibrant. This gives me some hope, but in the context that is, let's face it, pretty grim. I think that's a great point. I think it captures in all of this my sense as well, which is, Yes, what's being promoted is very bad, but at least there is a debate now about what government needs to do to intervene in public transport in these countries, rather than the kind of accepting the insane deregulated anarchy is just the only way forward. So I think, yeah, hopefully with this podcast, we can keep pushing that debate. And it's been amazing to talk to you. So thank you very much. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Max, who knew buses were so interesting? Yeah, I know, buses. And, and and also so just fundamental to people's human rights. You know, I've never thought about it like that. I really, really loved that angle. And the whole time I just kept thinking about my mom. Yeah, your mom, she uses, she uses public transport a lot, doesn't she, in Nairobi? Yeah, so she uses the, we call them matatus here, which is basically the minibuses we've been talking about. And it takes her about four to five hours a day wow. in transit. Yeah, like two hours in the morning, two or more hours in the evening. So she has to, one, leave very, very early if she wants to you know avoid this is just i mean just so people can see this is literally just across nairobi isn't it from one side to the other yes you know i asked her and you are trying to do the math just trying to see how much of her salary goes into transport and it was about 35 percent and sometimes it goes over that's without factoring in if it rains definitely fares immediately hike if there's construction on the road which is like every day these days fares will hike again so we are talking 35 to maybe even 40 percent sometimes of her salary will go just to transport that is nuts and on top of that her employer has this 
clocking system. So every time you get to work, you have to clock in that I got in at this particular time. So they have to get in by 8. If you're any later than 8.15 a.m., then you lose that hour and any hour after that until the time that it shows you got into work. So not only is she losing time, a lot of her salary is going into transport. But if she's late, despite waking up early and doing everything she did to do, she's also going to lose out on her wages. Like that's almost every other Kenyan's reality. Transport is going to cost you massively. It's huge. And and as Basam in his interview, it was really interesting how this kind of anarchy of privatization, of liberalization, also hurting people in the UK, the elderly, the poor, unable to get to hospital appointments, feeling isolated. And as you say, spending, I, I mean, not the same, uh, not 35, 40%, but still paying very high prices on very low incomes. So a real connection between the kind of reality in developing countries and these kind of privatised systems in the north as well. It was, as you've said, very interesting to know that people are also suffering in these developed countries. We've seen these new bus systems, these BRTs that are being suggested as a solution. Matteo doesn't agree at all that they are a solution, but Max, I sensed that you don't quite agree with Matteo. So could you share a bit more your thoughts on that? I mean, I wouldn't say I disagree with him. I just think they could be made to be a lot better. You know, ultimately the idea of having a rapid bus transit system that really reduces the the, the amount of time people uh, need to get to work. So imagine your mum, imagine it only took her half an hour to get to work instead of an hour and a half, two hours. And that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, But where I agree with him is, you know, having them run by private foreign companies, charging much, much higher prices. This is classic World Bank, you know, a, a really good idea, which is a public bus system, is undermined by their kind of neoliberal model of doing things, which is always contracting out, using these private companies um, and loving these kind of big, big infrastructure projects. So I do I, I do get his point and I do agree that other cities that haven't done this should be thinking about other ways of doing it. But I, I also think for those cities that have these bus transit systems, there should be a big fight to make them free for the poor, to subsidise them so people like your mum get to use them, basically. And he mentioned something about jobs as well. The fact that there's tens of thousands of jobs being lost, seeing what that would mean in Kenya if we had that tool system, it would mean loss of jobs for mostly young men because that's what we have in this industry. So how do we combine this system, which sounds really great, but also finding alternative ways to ensure that people still find employment? It's like, what what are the objectives of public policy? And one of them is to reduce the inequalities in terms of access to transport. But if you do that in a way that destroys tens of thousands of of jobs for unskilled young men. So to think of ways of providing public transport in ways that also don't massively reduce uh, the numbers of jobs, particularly overnight. Yeah, certainly a lot to think about. Yeah, Max. I mean, I'm really glad we did this episode. I definitely will be reading a lot more about it after this. And I hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as we have. As usual, please remember to share the podcast with your friends and family and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Yes, and particularly this episode, give it a really high rating because obviously it's Elizabeth's first episode and I think (laughs) we can all agree she was brilliant and put me to shame. So uh, looking forward to many more in the future. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you all next time. Bye.